Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Haunter of the Graveyard by J. Vernon Shea New acquaintances always had difficulty in locating Elmer Harrod's address, for although his street was just off one of the main arteries of the city, a stand of firs partially obscured the entrance. A large sign, Dead End Street, further discouraged entry, seemingly contradicted by a tiny arrow that quivered in the wind, bearing the legend, Old Death's Hill Cemetery. Despite the sign, no entranceway was provided for either car or pedestrian, nor was there a custodian's building. One had to clamber over a low stone fence, for this was the rear of the cemetery. The cemetery itself was long disused, every lot occupied. The last burial there had taken place more than fifty years before. City officials were uninterested in the maintenance of the cemetery. They had tried to cut a freeway through the grounds twelve years ago, but such a hue and cry had been raised about the desecration of consecrated grounds that they had had to abandon the project. Having won their case, the defenders of the historic cemetery promptly forgot about it. Now its roads were in such a state of disrepair, with Job high weed rustling triumphantly above the cracked concrete that they were closed to automobile traffic. Even the bridle path that ran outside the cemetery and crossed its roads at several points had been forsaken, for horses there always behaved strangely, skittering and shying at invisible obstacles. Harrod Street debouched sharply downhill. Harrod had few neighbours, although a number of mouldering, tumble-down houses long abandoned offered hazardous shelter to vagrants. Harrod's home was the last one on the street, close by the stone fence of the cemetery. It was a house straight out of the Victorian era, with a cupola, a widow's walk, gables, and other evidences of gingerbread. Its bravura delighted the pronounced histrionic streak in Harrod, and was the sole reason for his purchase. Had the house not afforded such gothic touches, Harrod would have found it necessary to have them built in. Harrod even boasted that the house contained a secret passageway, but he would never show it to his guests, else it wouldn't be secret any longer. His guests suspected him of fantasticating in this manner. Harrod always overdid everything, but it was quite true. Harrod had discovered the passageway in a curious manner. Shortly after he had moved in, he had had a dream, a very disturbing dream, in which he had been summoned in the night for some strange ritual, and had gone down into the basement and, as if through long familiarity, had pressed upon the wall in a certain place, and had gone through a suddenly revealed opening. The dream had ended at this point, before he could discover where the passageway led, or why he had been called. In the morning, he had retraced his steps to the basement wall, and, feeling rather silly, had looked for a hidden switch, and had found one. The passageway, he had discovered, was a tunnel hewn out of the earth. It appeared to burrow deep for many miles, 
a dank and cobwebbed place, seemingly without end, with some undisclosed vents that permitted a little air to circulate. Along the way were fixtures to hold torches, and it was evident from the flooring, not just packed earth, but some finished material, that many feet had trod this way before. Even the beam of his flashlight could not penetrate all the recesses cut out along the way, but they apparently contained nothing of interest, not even the bones and skulls he half-suspected to find. The tunnel was broad and high enough for several people to hasten along here at the same time. Hasten, for there was a feeling of urgency about the tunnel. The people who had passed here had not dallied. Even Harrod was conscious of a compulsion to reach the tunnel's end. It ended unexpectedly in a blank wall. No turn veered off it on either side, and though he played the flashlight over its entire expanse again and again, he could discover no sign of a switch or button. It seemed to Harrod that when he pressed his ear against the wall, he could hear from behind it a distant roaring, like the pounding of surf, but he knew very well that that couldn't be, for the house was miles away from the sea. In the days that followed, Harrod made many trips to the tunnel, but never managed to get past the wall. However, further exploration revealed that one of the recesses contained an exit that he had overlooked, an extension of the tunnel that led upward, and following its course he was brought outdoors, to a secluded corner behind a mausoleum in old Death's Hill Cemetery. Perhaps this discovery whetted his interest in the cemetery. Old Death's Hill Cemetery had very few visitors. Sometimes Harrod would see from his bay window some oldster laboriously seeking an ancestor's grave, or some antiquarian with camera case lung over, strolling along looking for some especially old gravestone, or a youthful art student intent upon making a rubbing of some curious inscription. Lovers came there occasionally for trysts. Vagrants for a brief time cooked edibles over little fires, and children new to the neighbourhood enchantedly climbed over the fence, bemused by all those acres to play in. But even in broad daylight, children did not tarry there long. They soon withdrew, subtly frightened. The cemetery had long had a name in the city as a place to be shunned, and its reputation was not helped by Harrod's discovery, during the first year of his occupancy of the house, of the body of a vagrant close by one of the paths. The throat had been uh, freshly torn out by something very sharp. Possibly it was the deed of another vagrant seeking vengeance, or the work of some large animal. He reported his discovery to the officials. The police came, made but a cursory examination— and hastily had the body carted away. Trees proliferated in the cemetery, descending into the valley to drink from the meandering creek, and marching resolutely up the hillsides. They grew quite fat, elbowing one another for living space, so close together that even at noon the sunlight could not quite penetrate their masses. When Harrod lay under one of the trees, the sun was but a rumour in the sky. One would think that with such a bounty of trees, the cemetery would be alive with birdsong. 
but Harrod had never heard or seen a bird there. Yet the cemetery was never still. There was constant faint rustlings or scatterings. But Harrod had yet to encounter any small creatures, not even a muskrat down at the creek, or a nervous field mouse. But perhaps he was just not observant enough. When he paused to examine an inscription, he might hear the snapping of twigs behind him, but no matter how swiftly he turned then, nothing would be in sight. There is something eerie about trees undappled by sun, where a sense of twilight prevails even at high noon, and Harrod found himself returning to the grounds again and again, if only to catch whatever it was that lurked amongst the trees. But strain his eyes, though he might, turn his head unexpectedly, keep his eyes to the ground, then suddenly look up, he never could surprise anything in the act of watching him, not even a deer sticking out an inquisitive nose. There was nothing to see but trees and the spaces between them, and leaves twisting in the wind. And the trees had the look of a primeval forest, as this land might have looked before the advent of man. These woods wanted no visitors, and Harrod sensed that he was an intruder. But intrude he must, for that was in his nature, like the actor who feels compelled to perform upon a darkened stage in an empty theatre. He felt, because of the nearness of his house, a sense of proprietorship over the cemetery grounds, and was made actively resentful on the rare day when he passed someone strolling along. Harrod's house was familiar to thousands of TV viewers, for on his show, Harrod frequently was pictured before it in some horrendous make-up or other, or the camera would dwell lovingly upon some architectural oddity or other. The gargoyle on the roof was a favourite subject, and eventually would discover Harrod in his library, in the midst of his tremendous collection of books of fantasy. Harrod would smirk at the viewer, and perhaps stroke a phony beard, and finger some book that might have some relationship to the film about to be shown. In over-rich, fluting tones, he would give a history of the vampire or the werewolf or ghoul, while the screen credits flashed on. For Harrod's specialty, and means of livelihood, was the showing of horror films, the older and more rubbishy the better, for television audiences predominantly teenagers. He knew that they turned on his programme, or claimed to, not for vicarious chills, but for the sardonic commentaries with which he frequently laced the proceedings. He would comment scathingly upon the acting and the quality of the script, and the obvious phoniness of the backgrounds, and he would encourage the actors. "'Come on, Bella, show your fangs now. Better not go in there, little lady. Boo to you, too!' Harrod turned a deaf ear to those horror-film buffs who phoned in to suggest he let the films alone. Once it had been released, any film was fair game for his arrows. Increasingly, as the years went by, the cemetery exerted a fascination for Harrod. It concealed a mystery he was determined to unfathom. For some time, he had harboured a suspicion that someone— one of his neighbours, perhaps, or even one of his TV-viewing public, was in the habit of playing tricks upon him, 
Sometimes, of an evening, he might see flickering lights deep within the cemetery, but whenever he went in to investigate, he could find no evidence of another's presence. Sometimes there were subtle sounds on the wind, like whispering or keening, sounds that were eldritch and infinitely chilling, and whenever he heard them, he would feel that his heart had stopped beating, and nothing could drag him into the cemetery then. Harrod told his acquaintances that the cemetery reminded him of a movie set. When fog collected in the valley, and the gravestones loomed crazily askew, one half expected Count Dracula to emerge upon a nocturnal errand. Certain areas of the cemetery could pass readily enough for Brontimors. At first, Harrod had delighted in being photographed against such backgrounds. His scrapbook bulged with snaps of him in weird disguises. But after a time, he began to realize that it was all very well to have fun in the cemetery, but that he had been overlooking its readily exploitable possibilities. He devised dramatic little scripts for use on TV films, and enlisted the aid of some students from Miskatonic University to enact them. The unaccustomed sounds of camera crews in action were now heard in the cemetery. The actors entered readily into the spirit of things. It was not difficult to register shock or horror in these macabre surroundings, especially when it seemed that the cemetery itself wished to cooperate. When the day's rushes were shown, it seemed to the company that things appeared thereon that they did not remember filming. Deep, menacing shadows that seemed to reach out for the players, just a suggestion of gibbering things on the periphery of the action, clouds of mists that obscured the screen momentarily, skies far more lowering than memory pictured them. And the soundtrack had recorded far more things that the sound engineers had counted upon, not the things that plague Hollywood crews like the buzzing of insects or the roar of passing planes, but sounds thoroughly in keeping with the mood of the film, a really inspired series of whisperings and rustlings of half-heard scutterings. The soundtrack, in fact, was so very busy that Harrod decided to dispense with the usual and costly electronic background music. Music here would be too much like painting the lily. These films— shown to the TV studios, impressed the advertising agencies greatly, and the films formed the basis for the spot offered Harrod. After an introductory shot of Harrod picking his way up the grave-strewn hillside, with trees bending so far in the wind that it seemed they were reaching out to clutch Harrod, the horror film that followed seemed doubly synthetic, and Harrod's jibes the more diverting. He suspected but did not want to know that some of these presumably genuine shots had been faked by the Miskatonic students when his back was turned, for to think otherwise that these unrehearsed sights and sounds were quite authentic was a possibility too chilling to be long entertained, for his memory would not permit him to rest. He remembered that when the camera crews had gone for the day— and he went for his wanted stroll through the cemetery, he sensed almost immediately a change in the atmosphere. He felt himself 
under surveillance, and the surveillance was distinctly inimical. It was as if he had betrayed a trust, and when he noticed the ravages left by the company, the cigarette butts mashed into the ground, the litter of paper cups with an inch or two of coffee still in them, the used flashbulbs, the trampled grass, the scuff marks on gravestones, the treads left by the camera equipment, he realized why the atmosphere was so actively hostile. There was a stillness in the air, as if something were waiting. A branch of a tree he passed under, tensed, as if about to tear at his throat. Old Death's Hill Cemetery employs no caretakers, and he felt just a bit foolish as he began to repair the damage as best he could, gathering up the accumulated litter into one pile, and going back to his home for cardboard boxes into which to place it. But he had the definite feeling that his presence would be unwelcome here, until he made at least a show of effort on the cemetery's behalf. It was true that the cemetery did not always wear so forbidding an air, else he would have been reluctant to visit it so frequently. There were bright days in spring and summer, when the cemetery seemed in a relaxed mood, like a tiger washing itself in the sun. There were never any flowers upon the graves, of course, but during the warm months nature itself provided bouquets of wild flowers. Even a hillside yellow with dandelions in the sun is a joy to the eye, and in the soft light that sometimes filtered through the trees and dappled the ground, the cemetery looked almost benign. And down in the creek, the water that gurgled over the rocks pretended to be rapids. Sometimes a big brindle cat would walk for some distance along the stone fence and seem about to venture inside, but at the last moment would think better of it and drop hastily down. It was on such a day that Harrod first thought of bringing reading material to the cemetery, and thereafter, whenever he strolled there, a book or magazine always accompanied him. He had to select his reading carefully, for he had found that such favourite writers of his as Jane Austen and Peacock, for instance, clashed immediately with the surroundings. He discovered, conversely, that whenever he stretched out upon a gravestone to read, even the most spurious story in a pulp horror magazine seemed to gain validity thereby. He realised that such behaviour was sheerest bravado, but it gave him a delectable titillation. Once, when a child strayed into the cemetery and found him enwrapped in an Inverness cape, part of the Dracula get-up, dozing upon a grave, the child screamed and screamed and ran and ran, and the sound of his screams brought chuckles to Harrod in delighted remembrance. But reading in old Death's Hill Cemetery at night, with a strong flashing light spilling over the pages of Blackwood or Macken, was the greatest thrill of all. He chose usually the finest horror tales for these nocturnal excursions, sometimes almost afraid to turn a page, because the sentence he had been reading had been punctuated by a quite indefinable sound. It had been warm during the day, but now the sharpness of the night air presaged the winter to come. Harrod drew the flaps of his topcoat protectively about his face, 
It was uncommonly quiet in the cemetery, the only sounds for a moment being the crackling of the sear leaves underfoot. With so many leaves fallen, the branches looked unduly prominent, each contorted shape as eye-arresting as if it had been newly painted. The trees seemed huddled less in coterie, their bareness permitting the full moonlight to penetrate the cemetery grounds. But the moonlight held no warmth. It was obscured of a sudden by a passing cloud, causing Harrod to look up. The sight was so reminiscent of a hundred horror films that Harrod tittered involuntarily, and lifted his head mockingly, and bade the moon in deft imitation of the wolfman. The mockery was out of place, Harrod suddenly had cause to feel. He felt a prickling of the skin. The cemetery was sentiently aware of his presence. He had the disquieting sensation of being watched. He half expected the tentacle of some extraterrestrial monster to come probing out of the bushes. The grass along the path had not been cut within memory, and came up past his knees, the blade seeming to cut at him with serrated teeth. The wind came up strong just then, and a rippling ran through the high grasses, as if to mark the passage of some small creature. He stumbled, and almost fell over a gravestone that had been hidden by weeds. He pulled them back, and sent a beam from his flashlight upon the marker. Obadiah Carter, the marker read. The dates had been almost obliterated by time, but so far as he could decipher, they read seventeen ninety-something to eighteen-something and seven. There were a number of Carter graves hereabouts, part of a once-flourishing shipbuilding family. Hadn't he known a Randolph Carter in his youth, one who had a fearsome tale of some cemetery such as this? Old Death's Hill Cemetery no doubt knew many such tales. Harrod had often wondered what the faces of the people who dwelt in cold solitude here had been like. Dour, puritanical faces, no doubt, or disturbed— mad faces, the faces of nightmare. Obadiah Carter's grave was too wee-choked to provide what he was looking for, and so he hastened on. He had come along this way dozens of times, and yet in the moonlight everything looked oddly different, graves appearing before his eyes in places where he hadn't remembered them, and the path meandering in unexpected turns. Before he was quite prepared for it, he came upon the spot he had termed Witch's Hollow, his destination. It was a place where the trees and the underbrush had been pushed back, as if by the hand of a gigantic gardener, a place roughly in the shape of a circle, where the earth looked as black and dead as that of a burned-out forest, although no fire had blazed here within anyone's memory. Perhaps a century or so ago, this had been the meeting-place of a coven of witches, who had burned sacrificial offerings to their black goat-god. The place was fringed by firs standing like sentries, the tallest trees of the cemetery, and just beyond them oaks and willows and maples crowded in for a look. The gravestones 
were arranged within the circle to an order lost to history. Harrod suspected that were one to shift the markers of the principal graves a few inches here and there, a perfect pentagram would be formed, and it took little imagination to picture witches and warlocks sitting upon the markers of their graves, watching him. Indeed, Harrod had filmed just such a scene here. He himself had been the sacrificial victim of the film, for with his rather plump body and look of preening self-indulgence, he was marked for the part. He considered that he had given quite a good performance, rolling his eyes in terror and quavering in his speech. Harrod settled himself as comfortably as he could in his usual position upon the grave of Jeremy Kent, and opened his book directing the beam of his powerful flashlight upon the pages, although the moonlight washed the scene so brightly here that he could almost dispense with the flashlight. The marble of the gravestone was quite cold in the night air, and after a while its chill began to seep into his buttocks, even through the thickness of his topcoat. His ungloved fingers grew so stiff and numb that he could scarce turn the pages— Jeremy Kent, a euphonious, harmless-sounding name. But in local folklore, Jeremy Kent was reputed to have been a warlock or wizard, possibly the leader of the coven. The gravestone attested that he had been still in his early thirties when he died, a handsome man with the coldest of blue eyes. The legends concerning Kent were uncommonly interesting and it had long been Harrod's plan, whenever he could raise the necessary capital, to make a feature-length film about his life. But how would he be able to suggest the scene in which Jeremy Kent tears the living heart out of a child's body? Jeremy Kent had not died of natural causes. The enflamed townspeople had taken matters into their own hands. But if Harrod acceded to historical accuracy in this matter— the scene would be too much like scenes from Frankenstein and a dozen other horror films. Possibly, Harrod thought, he could have Kent visited by celestial vengeance. He kept pondering about Kent, as if loath to continue reading the Lovecraft story at the point at which he had left off last evening, for the Providence recluse had come too uncomfortably close to reality. Old Death's Hill Cemetery itself was like a plagiarism from his pages. This clearing, which Harrod had termed Witch's Hollow, would fit all too easily into a Lovecraftian work, and Jeremy Kent differed very little from one of Lovecraft's villains. It was almost as if Lovecraft had visited this place himself, and considering his extensive antiquarian wanderings in this region, the possibility that he had done so was not unlikely. The most disturbing thing was the dream. It was well known that H. P. Lovecraft had had a number of distinctly disturbing dreams, eerie dislocations of time and space, nightmares so complete and well organized in themselves that frequently he was able to transfer the dreams to the printed page virtually without change. His dreams had none of the random illogic that characterizes the usual dream, but granted their fantastic premise, were quite compellingly real. 
The story Harrod had been reading last evening, Harrod suspected, had likewise had its genesis in one of Lovecraft's dreams. It was such a disquieting story, that it had filled Harrod's thoughts all last evening, so that it was not really surprising that when at last he fell off to sleep, he had found himself reliving Lovecraft's story, with this difference, that he found that the locale of the story had shifted to Harrod's own house. He was part of a group of cowled figures, with clothes beneath the cowls that were suitable for another century, that was moving swiftly along the secret passageway that he had discovered. They had seized torches from the brackets along the walls, and were moving three abreast. When they came to the terminal wall, they did not hesitate long. The leader inserted his fingers into grooves at the base of the wall, and lifted, and in a moment the entire wall slid up like a garage door. From behind the wall came a sudden breath of cold air, and Harrod found himself moving along with the group into a grotto whose immensity staggered his eyes, an ill-illumined cavern whose walls dripped slime. The greenish light revealed water lapping only a few hundred yards from his feet, the water of a cove with apparently an entrance to the sea beyond the rocks far in the distance. The curious part was that Harrod knew himself to be in a dream at the time, and tried to struggle awake. There must have been some elision of time in the dream at this point, for the next thing he knew, he was participating with the group in some kind of ceremony at the shore of the cove, chanting a gibberish incantation. Ya, ya, Cthulhu Fatagan, Fenglui Magla, Cthulhu Rilya, Waga Nagul Fatagan. And in the dream, presently, there was an answer to the call. His memory refused to sort out the details of the thing that rose to the surface then, a thing tremendous in size, with unbelievably long tentacles. The dream, mercifully, had come to an end at this point. In the morning, Harrod had been so shaken that his mind balked at the thought of going down into the passageway, to confirm that the wall would indeed slide up, as it had done in the dream. The thought that he might see the cove again was too much for his peace of mind. Fortunately, a call had come later from the studio, and he had busied himself most of the day, preparing a script. But now, as he read the pages of the Lovecraft story, the monstrous dream kept intruding. A sudden great gust of wind riffled the pages as he read almost tearing the book from his hands. It diminished, moaning. A stillness overtook the clearing. The furs at its edge, which had been tossing and quivering like a dog shedding water, stood now monumentally erect. It was too still. Seized by a sudden impulse, whose origin he couldn't fathom, Harrod turned back in the Lovecraft story, going through the pages until he found what he sought. He drew the topcoat about him, rose as if on cue, and with great histrionic effect, slowly pronounced the words, pronouncing them as best he could. Ya, ya, Cthulhu Fatagan, Fenglui Magla, 
Cthulhu Rilier Waga Nagul Fatagan. The moonlight paled. There was a gathering of shadows where there had been no shadows. A sudden suspension of light that blotted out the trees and tall grasses. The shadows appeared to advance. Harrod blinked and rubbed his eyelids to clear them of granular roughnesses. No, it wasn't his imagination. The shadows were there, somehow more solid than they had been an instant before, an advancing phalanx of darkness. Ice water coursed down his spine. The shadows were there. They had stopped now, but did not retreat. They stopped, and looked at Harrod, and waited. The darkness disappeared from the face of the moon, and there was light in the sky once again, a precipitous flow of light at the edge of the clearing, between the flanking firs. And there were things in the sky there, high above the trees. There were faces on a gigantic scale, faces that were only remotely human, and a tumultuous threshing of non-human parts, with a suggestion of tentacles. They were up there, with rapacious eyes, but it seemed that their concentration had not yet been engaged upon Harrod. They were searching the ground like a bird looking for insects. Harrod whimpered and sought to hide, heaving himself off the gravestone and scrabbling in the loose gravel with his hands. Possibly the movement of his feet had triggered some mechanism, for as he cowered beside the marker there was a creaking sound, as of protesting hinges, that set up a reverberating clangour on the night air, and the gravestone he had just vacated slowly began to rise before his eyes. And now Harrod saw that the gravestone had concealed steps, a flight of stairs that descended subterraneously, and from them came a breath of stale and noisome air. As he gazed at the steps in terror, he was conscious of a diminution of light just beyond the periphery of his vision, and looking up, he saw that the moonlight had quitted the clearing, and that the shadows had come very near, surrounding him in an inescapable ring, with little pinpoints of light which might have been eyes. The pale light could not define their shapes. They were not wraith-like at all, not in the least transparent, but rather concentrations of darkness. There was the slightest susurration of sound, almost below hearing level, and it gradually grew into a hollow whispering. It came from the subterranean passage. There was no one, no thing down there, he knew. There couldn't be. And yet he kept looking fearfully down the steps, as if expecting momentarily the appearance of a shrouded figure, possibly one with cold, blue eyes. The whispering increased in volume, insistent, urgent. The voice sounded cold and ancient and unspeakably corrupt. And now he began to distinguish its words. Come down, Harrod. Come down. Old Death's Hill Cemetery is little frequented, and it was a considerable time later that a pair of lovers, cutting off from the main path, almost trod 
upon a body. It was so badly decomposed that it required a dental check-up to identify it as that of the missing Elmer Harrod. Had Harrod still been living, he himself would have cut the shot as too horrifying for his TV viewers, for the head had almost been completely torn from the body, adhering to it only by a few shreds of rotting flesh. The mouth was engaged in a perpetual scream, and the eyes, almost popping from their sockets, held too much nightmare horror to contemplate for long. The body was only barely recognizable as human. It had been twisted almost inside out, and something had gnawed upon it for quite a little while. Hello, ladies and gents, Ian here. Be sure to pop on over to our YouTube channel or Facebook page for regular updates. If you'd like to support our work, please consider taking a look at our Patreon or Bandcamp pages, or search for us on Audible. You'll find links to everything on our website, horrorbabble.com forward slash links.